We're going to look today at just the first three verses of uh, Hebrews uh, 13. In his little commentary on uh, the book of Hebrews, the late uh, Pastor Ray Stedman compared this uh, last chapter of Hebrews to the following limerick. It goes like this. There was a young poet in Japan whose poetry no one could scan. When told it was so, he replied, yes, I know. But I try to get as many words into the last line as I possibly can. (laughs) In other words, there's a lot here. And it's difficult to sort out exactly how it fits together. The, uh, D- Dr. Philip Hughes, a serious uh, New Testament uh, scholar who uh, wrote the best uh, commentary I have on the book of Hebrews, admits this difficulty. He says, in this chapter, our author loosely strings together an assortment of practical and social exhortations and doctrinal admonitions, followed by a request for their prayers on his be- behalf, his own prayer for God's blessing on them, and a final appeal and a salutation. That's a lot. But if we think about where we are in this book, I believe all these exhortations of this chapter make sense to us. These people who were the original uh, readers of Hebrews were under great pressure, pressure severe enough that it was causing many to be tempted to consider abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ and going back to what was familiar. And so for 12 chapters, the authors argued in, in in, in one direction and another through all of the Old Testament culture and history, he's argued the superiority of Christ. But folks, pressures don't just tempt us to theological compromise. It doesn't just test the strength of our doctrine when we're under pressure. No, life's pressures also tend to break down our relationships and distort our values, and get us so discouraged that we do things which we might never consider doing in normal circumstances. And so in this last chapter, our author, who had addressed the theological issues so well, refuses to just let all the practical fallout of that go unmentioned. And he crams it all in here, but it makes sense to me, because so we learn uh, really a little later in this chapter that this whole book of Hebrews is a sermon. Well, when you get down to this point in the sermon, he's looking at the clock, and he's 10 minutes overtime already, and he's cramming it in, and that's where we are. We're cramming it in. But we're not going to cram it in. We're going to take a little bit of time and get through this. So and listen and, and ponder this morning, just considering these first three verses. Let me read them. Hebrews 13, 1 to 3. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison, as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated, as if you yourself were suffering. These verses are all about Christian love. But here that general subject is broken down into three specifics. So so we have three easy points here this morning. The first is this. Love one another like family. Love one another like family. Literally, interestingly, verse 1 could be translated this way. Stay in Philadelphia. Jane, I missed that message 20 years ago when we left the Philadelphia area to come here. 
But that's what it says. Stay in Philadelphia. I'm talking about the two verbs. There are two words here. There's the verb, to stay, and there's the noun, Philadelphia. Let's talk about each of those. First, the noun, Philadelphia. That's the word for brotherly love. Even if you've never been there, you probably know that the city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. And if you have been there, you probably know it is not because there's no crime there. It's called that because that's what the word Philadelphia means. William Penn, who founded that city, was a Quaker who hated the divisiveness that he saw attached to the religious diversity in this land. And so when he founded a city, he wanted to be a city where the diversity could exist within the bonds of brotherly kindness. And so looking for a word to name the city, he chose the Greek word Philadelphia, a word that means brotherly love. Phileo is love. Adelphia is from uh, 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 the, the word for brother. Where do, where do Christians get this idea that we ought to love one another like family, as brothers and sisters? Pretty common in the world in general, I guess, to talk like this. Corporate leaders uh, uh, say with some pride, our company is like one big family. Often the people who work there don't think that, but uh, leaders might. Uh, uh, sports teams and the military, they, they talk in these terms that we're like a, a band of brothers. Everyone wants to be loved and accepted, not on the basis of our performance or our status in society, but loved and accepted for who we are, just because we're part of the family. Most of the people who want that, however, seldom experience it because we live in a brutal, me-first world. But Christians actually have a significant basis for such brotherly love. Jesus said that those who believe in him, those who receive him, will be called the children of God. Now, there are two ways to become someone's child, and the Bible uses both of those ways to describe what Jesus does in and for us. When the Spirit joins us to Jesus, Jesus says we're born again, born into God's family, becoming the children of God. Or in other places, the Bible says that in Christ Jesus, we who were not by nature children of God are adopted into God's family. The point is, when we're joined to Jesus, not only does our estrangement to God turn into parental love, but our estrangement to one another turns into brotherly love. For if we are born or adopted into the same family, we're siblings. We're related. So love one another like family. That's the noun here in verse 1. Then there's the verb. <clears throat> The verb means to dwell, or to abide, or to stay, or to remain. I think the implication is that loving one another gets wearisome. People can be a drain on you. Certain kinds of people suck the life right out of you. So it's really easy to just say, 
I'm through. I'm tired of trying to love anybody like family. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm becoming a cynic. I, I'll be by myself. Thank you. But this text calls us to continue in that love, to keep on loving one another, as the NIV translates it. Now, this word used here, this verb, is the same verb that Jesus used in John 15 when he said, I'm, uh, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me. Abide in me. Stay, dwell, remain, live, endure in me. So that to live, dwell, abide in Christ means we are also to live and dwell and abide in brotherly love. Love for one another. That's what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4. He wrote, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, and he has given us this command, Whoever loves God must love his brother. That's the exhortation of this text. Love one another like family. May I suggest this is a special challenge to us in this area with all the family connections around us? I've been places where most everyone I knew was uprooted from somewhere else and found ourselves in the same place with no family connections. So people felt disconnected and alone. Consequently, in those places, the family connection between believers becomes a huge reality. One's church family is often the only family that they have. But here, where so many have their whole biological family close by, other believers may be part of my church, but they're not my family. And so many... I think, never really know the richness of what God intended his people to be. They never know he's more concerned. He is more concerned about our family connections in Christ than our family connections in our genes. And so many churches, though filled with our relatives, may never really experience the unique joy of being a family in Christ. So this morning, at the risk of offending your family members who think they have first priority on your life, I challenge you to not settle for less than the family unity which God has supernaturally created and sustains through Christ and through his spirit. Love one another as family. Brothers and sisters in Christ gathered in this body. Then as we unpack this matter of love, we come to a second truth here. Shows hospitality to strangers. Show hospitality to strangers. Just a day before yesterday, Jane and I were driving up the guide on our way home, and we saw someone hitchhiking, someone who looked rather unkept. And so a discussion ensued about whether or not we ought to pick up hitchhikers. Well, actually, it was a pretty brief discussion. It went something like this. Not a chance. (laughs) In the past, I've hitchhiked, and I've picked up a lot lot of hitchhikers. 
And I must tell you, my experience has been consistently bad. And I like to learn from my experience. So I don't do that anymore. Jane never did. But you know, there's a danger in just writing off such things, for God clearly indicates that our brotherly love sometimes should also be extended to strangers. That's the second exhortation here. Show hospitality to strangers. Now, the issue of hospitality was a hot issue in the early church because there were no holiday inns to stay in. The roadhouses were notorious for their wickedness, the danger, the price. So traveling Christians were totally dependent upon the hospitality of other Christians who were total strangers to them. But as you might expect in a sinful world, that sometimes presented difficult situations. What if the traveler took advantage of the hospitality? What if the traveling, traveler was an evangelist, but come to find out he's teaching a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus delivered by the apostles? Well, the apostle John addressed that in 2 John, verses 10 and 11. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is about Christ, do not take him into your home, into your house, or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. So John calls us to have some discernment in our welcoming strangers. By the second century, as the problems arose and had to be confronted with the church, a book called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve, was written to give further instruction about how Christians were to handle this matter of hospitality. They instructed that every stranger who came in the name of the Lord that is professing to be a fellow Christian should be received, but that his profession put to the test. And if he was a wayfarer, his stay should be for not more than two or three days. Still more problematic was that the appearance of men who falsely claimed to be Christian teachers and apostles and prophets, anyone whose teaching was contrary to the apostles' doctrine, were to be totally rejected. But also anyone who stayed for more than two days or asked for money were to be as imposters and parasites. You see, God expects us to use some discernment in the welcoming of strangers. So I would say to you to invite a homeless drug addict into your home to sleep across the hall from your children is not great hospitality, it is irresponsibility. But to just turn him away without a thought is not great hospitality either. Perhaps you could pay for a room for him to get him out of the cold and take him to breakfast and talk to him and learn what he needs and find some help for a man. To emphasize the point of concern for strangers, verse 2, without a lot of fanfare explanation, reminds us of some Old Testament incidents where God's people extended hospitality to strangers, only to later learn that they had extended hospitality to angels, totally unaware. That happened to Abraham and Sarah as they camped near the trees of Mamre. The three visitors showed up and they fed them and only to find out they had a message from the Lord and deal that it was the angel of the Lord. 
There was Lot's experience in Sodom, the wicked place where he welcomes the visitors because he feared for them, only to find out that they came to warn him to get out of town. Angelic messengers. Showing hospitality to strangers certainly requires us to figure out what is wise, but it also means we don't just turn people away without a thought. Oh, but this truth has an even simpler, less threatening application for us. You know, we meet people all the time that we don't know. And too often we don't even think about them. We don't care to know them. We don't even get their name. Indeed, sometimes people walk into this church and walk out feeling unwelcomed. But God calls us to be a welcoming people, to love people wherever we find them, to get to know them so that they're not strangers, to welcome them into our homes, to our table, to share a meal with us. That's not hard, but that is important People feel lost and alone and disenfranchised and uncared for. And it's amazing how much a little friendly hospitality makes a difference in people's lives. How it opens the door for the gospel. Case in point. Christ Church in Bellingham. A church plant in which the chapel has been very involved financially and with seed families from here going to begin that church. Christ Church in Bellingham is experiencing phenomenal growth. At the Presbytery meeting that I was out a couple of weeks ago, the Presbytery was amazed. It's hard to plant churches in the Northwest. It's a slow slog. And in Bellingham, this church has taken off. This morning, there are probably more people in Christ Church Bellingham than there are here. So what have they done that's so effective? Well, that's a dangerous question to think you can answer because you don't really know. But they do have a core concept which seems to be bearing fruit. You see, their commitment is to not just preach at people, but to understand that people are lonely and isolated. And so... By showing hospitality and having people into your home and sitting them at your table and feeding them, they seek to reach out to people. That's been a central practice of that church from the beginning. So much so that if you see anything with their logo on it, their logo is a wooden table. That's what it signifies. You're welcome to our table. And now they are seeing that such a practical expression of the love of Christ can't be ignored by lonely, hurting people. It speaks to people in the pain of this fractured culture in which we live, where people live lonely, isolated lives, to be welcomed and and, and brought to dinner and fed. By the way, if you talk to those guys, they'll tell you they learned that at Wiser Lake Chapel. When Nate and Trevor first first showed up at the chapel, someone showed them that kind of hospitality. Someone invited them home and fed them. 
I don't know who. Probably several of you at different times. But if you're one of those people, look at the fruit it is born. Look at the fruit. It's been duplicated this Sunday and every Sunday in, in, in lots of families. So why do we do that all the time? Why do we just do that routinely? It's so simple. And praise God for those who do, for that's our calling, to show hospitality to strangers. Well, finally, there's one more expression of love here. That's this. Identify with the suffering. Identify with the suffering ones. I read this week that Saeed Abedini, the Iranian-American pastor who is now imprisoned in Iran, fears that he has been forgotten by the international community. Well, that's what happens when a man is in prison and cut off from his family and tortured and told daily that nobody cares about him, that he's just going to die there, rot there in prison. In fact, why would any prisoner expect anything different? Well, in our text, we can see why this particular prisoner would think differently. For here the Spirit specifically calls on the church to remember such prisoners, a text which this pastor undoubtedly knows pretty well. This third discussion about Christian love focuses on prisoners and those who are mistreated. Now that includes quite a diverse group of people, some innocent victims and some the most hardened criminals that you can imagine. And so there are all kinds of prison ministries and and charities that do good work as they constantly try to minister to this vast group and all the various uh, uh, subgroups there. But frankly, in the context of the book of Hebrews, the mistreated prisoners were almost certainly Christian brothers and sisters who were suffering because of their faith. These were people like that pastor Saeed Abedinai, or that other Iranian pastor, Yosef Nader Khani, who uh, was uh, imprisoned, sentenced to death, and then suddenly released for time served, and then on Christmas Day taken back into custody, and who knows what's happening to him. That's the kind of thing that was happening to these readers. They were having their property seized. Some of them were being imprisoned. Generally, they were being persecuted because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, the Lord uh, forbids the church to just forget about them, to just go on without them as if nothing happened. The church is called to remember, that is to recall, to be aware of information and to respond in appropriate ways, whatever is possible. That's what we read in the New Te- other places in the New Testament. Second Timothy 1.8, Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, the prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel. Identify with the suffering. In 2 Timothy 1.16, Paul says that Onesiphorus often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He identified with Paul the prisoner. You see, it's inconceivable that the Lord wants his church to just continue in our pursuit 
of, of comfort and ease and having good order in everything, while some of our members are imprisoned and being mistreated and persecuted. That was not appropriate for this Jewish church to whom this book was written. It's not appropriate for the suffering Iranian church. And it's not appropriate for the American church so overwhelmed with its success and its wealth and its comfort. The Lord calls us to a very intense perspective. Some may do charity work with kind of a detached, clinical, or even condescending attitude toward those to whom they minister. But here we are called to identify with those who are mistreated. To think of ourselves as fellow prisoners with them. To remember that we are members of the same body of Christ as they are. And as the Apostle Paul wrote elsewhere, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This kind of teaching did just come up somewhere and somebody decided to write it down here. This is the teaching of the gospel. Christ did not rescue us and save us while sitting in the comforts of heaven. That's not what happened. The eternal word of God took flesh and dwelt among us. He took on our human body. He submitted himself to the weakness of humanity. He suffered along with all of his friends. Indeed, he took his sin upon us and was punished in our place. In short, Jesus identified himself with our suffering. And now he expects us to do the same thing for one another. And might I just add, you don't have to go into a prison to identify with those who are suffering. The rest home is full of such people wishing somebody cared. Others sit alone at home because they can't make it even to worship anymore. Others move around slowly because they're disabled and they know they're considered a nuisance by a lot of people. You see, there are lots of things that can become a kind of imprisonment. But as in every part of life the Lord calls us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, as if you yourselves were suffering that. You see, brotherly love is to be very wide and very deep and very long in the church. Three specific instructions about love here. Love one another as family. We're brothers and sisters. Show hospitality. Yes, be discerning. But don't be afraid to be hospitable to strangers. And identify with the suffering. And how important are these commands to love one another? Well, Jesus says it's most important for this is the identifying trait of Christ's church. By this, he says, all men will know you are my disciples because you love one another. We cannot claim to believe and embrace the gospel of grace 
if we fail to practice the grace of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray.